Now, you don't need me to tell you that the world has changed, perhaps irrevocably. Six months ago, if I had told you that uh, we would be in the position we are now, you would laugh and you would go, that couldn't happen. And you'd probably use expressions like, that couldn't possibly happen. That the whole world would be shut down, that things would change, that we wouldn't be allowed to shake hands, that we wouldn't be allowed to congregate. That couldn't happen. But that is happening. Um, Four years ago, if I had told you that Donald Trump would be President of the United States, in 2020, you possibly would say that couldn't happen. Or that if I asked you, um, do you think Donald Trump could send unmarked federal agents into Portland to arrest protesters and kidnap them at will? Uh, that couldn't happen. Or Boris Johnson maybe becoming leader of um, uh, the United Kingdom. That couldn't happen. Or Jair Bolsonaro, a far-right populist, becoming leader of Brazil and in doing so saying... There are 2,000 people dead today from COVID-19. What do you say, Mr. Bolsonaro? And he snarls back, what do you want me to do about it? In Portuguese. You'd say, that couldn't happen. No such man could be like that or, or, or become president of a great country like Brazil. But it is happening. And maybe we've got to get used to the idea that that couldn't happen, will happen, might happen, and is imminently going to happen now. Recently, I was sent an article by John Gibbons, um, environmental commentator and frequent contributor to this show, which outlined a pretty horrific, dark um, and dystopian view of our future. It was written by an economist, I believe, although John will fill me in further now, called Umair Haq. Is that right, John? That's correct, Mario. Well, take us through this article. This article outlines in steps, doesn't it, how the end of human and human civilization could materialise. That's right, Mario. I guess he breaks it down, if you like, uh, decade by decade. And I suppose maybe that's the, we often think in terms of decades, we think of the 70s and the 80s and so on. So really, I guess the the 2020s, uh, we can think of this really as the the decade uh, at which the things begin to come apart. Systems begin, pressures that are applied in the system cause the system to begin to unravel. And in your intro there, you describe some of that, the rise of populism, um, pressures, for example, from migration, pressures from uh, extreme weather events. These are co- these, these send out ripples of instability. And as he put it, he described it, that what's coming down the line, he said, over the next three to five decades, we have a combination, a very toxic combination of climate change, mass extinctions, ecological collapse, economic depressions, financial implosions, political upheavals, pandemics, plagues, floods, fires, and social breakdown. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, this particular apocalypse, if you like, there's multiple horsemen. So this is really what we're facing into over the next number of decades. And uh, it's not inevitable, by the way. I think it's very important to say from the outset, this is not inevitable. This isn't just the prophecy of doom. What the author of this piece, who is indeed an economist, what he has done is he's looked at mainstream science and said, right, what's it telling us? What direction is it pointed? And this is a topic I've studied carefully and written about extensively over a decade and a half. Uh, so, you know, I fact-checked, if you like, the, the content of his article, and, and he's stuck really to, to entirely within the realm of scientific uh, plausibility. There's no, this isn't about scaremongering, this isn't about trying to frighten people, but I think it's extraordinarily important to understand what's possible. Possible shouldn't be conflated with inevitable. We still have choices, but our window for choices is closing rapidly. The decisions that we needed our politicians to make, our societies to make, we probably needed them to to make them 20 years ago. We certainly needed them 10 years ago, and we sure as heck need them now. But these decisions, Mario, are still being 
um, fudged. We're still continuing, stumbling forward, uh, pressing against all our ecological limits in a way that suggests that, um, you know, as a species, we don't appear to have um, a trajectory towards long-term survival. And there's a, a genuinely distinct possibility that humanity, as we understand it, certainly human civilization, as you call it, um, won't exist in any recognizable fashion by by the mid-century. Now, that's a scary prospect because that's the time that my kids and many many of your listeners' kids will, will be the adults of that day. Yes, my, so son, for my, some... son, my son was born in 2007. My daughter was born in 2013. They would be 43 and 37 um, around the year 2050. And this, right, article, po- this article postulates that uh, the, the civilization as we know it now might cease to exist. Um, so this is ostensibly a depressing scenario. Again, it's not inevitable, it's only possible. Um, from your expertise, at the tip of this uh, uh, theory is climate. But climate, it shows, will lead inevitably, perhaps in this case, to other things. It starts with climate, but it doesn't end with climate. So this isn't just like, oh, the rivers will rise and the sea will rise and the salt water will rise and the, the you know, we'll all, Miami will be wiped out and then New York will be wiped out and then Ballinahinch will be wiped out. It's not about that necessarily. It's about what maybe climate change can lead to other um, tipping point factors uh, in our society. That's absolutely correct, Mario. There was a there was a very major uh, study published in the last couple of months, and what it did was it took a very careful analysis of the conditions in which humans live on Earth. In other words, the the, the areas of Earth that are habitable to humans at the moment, only about one percent of the land surface of the Earth is is uninhabitable for humans, and that's mostly in the in the Sahara region. Now. The scientists basically ran their models forward and they projected that by 2070, which is 50 years out, that will increase from 1% to 19%. That means within the next five decades, a fifth of the world's land surface will be uninhabitable to humans. Now, let me explain what I mean by uninhabitable to humans. It basically means if you're outdoors for more than a couple of hours, you die. That's what we mean by uninhabitable to humans. Now, the areas in the earth today where that 19% of the land area is covered, 3 billion people live there. 3,000 million people live there. Now, you've got to ask yourself a very important question. Cast your mind back to 2015, 2014, and after the, the Syrian conflict, as we had approximately 2 million refugees attempting to access Europe, and you know the consequences, the political consequences of that, uh, it probably triggered Brexit, arguably it even gave us Donald Trump. That was 2 million refugees. Now, you multiply that up to 3,000 million refugees. These are people who have no choice. If they stay where they live today, they die. Therefore, you can't put up a fence and tell them not to cross it. When you, and For example, the areas that we're talking about are Southeast Asia, most of continental India, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, and these are some of the most, de- and, and also eastern China. These are some of the most densely populated places on earth. And if we continue at business as usual, three billion people will be forced uh, to migrate across borders. Now, there'll be internal migration, which we have a lot of at the moment. This is where people are fleeing uh, the countryside and heading into the cities because uh, of, in particular, because of uh, rising temperatures leading to agricultural breakdown and, po- and increased poverty in rural areas. We're seeing this hugely in South and Central America. Yep. Right. So, John, mm-hmm. uh, now I'm just using my own intuition here just as a layperson. But when you say, sure. uh, when you describe immigration or migration, rather, uh, uh, on that level, 
you start encountering presumably massive problems of uh, social, uh, civic breakdown and possibly the failure of government itself. Government itself is extremely fragile. Democracy is fragile. Um, and so it doesn't take that much, so this person argues, to tip government over the edge whereby, first of all, it starts using increasingly um, increasingly uh, military solutions to these problems. So you're talking about guns and um, you know police states and everything. And ultimately, the government fails and just can't cope with the amount of people that are flooding into its areas. Is, isn't that what you're talking about? Yeah, this is pretty much it. And, and we have historical precedent for this, by the way. If you, if you drive around uh, Ireland and keep your eyes out, you'll see um, the, the remains of uh, basically fortifications that dot the countryside. These were, were, were built during a time when uh, constant raiding and constant warfare was the normal practice in Ireland. And this is just a number, a number of, of centuries back. So we still have the physical remnants, if you like, the reminders of an era in which basically uh, we had total insecurity and, and, and political anarchy and so on. But yes, I mean, essentially it's impossible to conceive of a billion or two billion or three billion climate refugees not, I mean, pulling down the nation state as, as it's currently constituted, particularly the, de the democratic model, which has become the, the big model since the Second World War, will not survive. We're already seeing the rise of authoritarianism. Yeah. We're already seeing the wall building. Now, when you add on to that, we are going to lose on our current trajectory, we're going to lose huge amounts of resources. And essentially, all the future wars are going to be wars about water, wars about food, yes. wars about fish. Now, we've already seen this, for example, right now uh, in, say, in, in Africa, where Ethiopia is attempting to dam the Nile. And further up uh, stream, Egypt and Sudan uh, are, are, are looking at this. And, and that, that's a situation where you can imagine those countries going to war because ultimately, we, we kind of think, you know, what's important in life? Well, it's my iPhone, it's my this, that, and the other. No, it's not. It's the critical stuff. It is access to safe water. It is those basic things. And to, to go back to the article, Mario, um, one of the points that he make, he said, he said, you, the rich person of the 2020s, in other words, people like you, people like me who are listening to us today, he said, by the 2030s, by the 2040s, you're learning to you're learning what it is to live like a poor person globally always did. They always had to ration their food, their water, their energy, their medicine, right? Mm -hmm. You have to decide today, do I eat or do I treat my sick kid? These are the decisions that the global poor are already making every day. And part of this, and I hope you don't mind me detouring slightly, um, I was doing a little bit of reading up on it. Um, we have our top 10 billionaires in the world today. The poorest of them is worth $66 billion. The richest, Jeff Bezos, $178 billion. Our billionaires alone monopolize $8,000 billion worth of wealth. So we have a lot of wealth in the world. So the problem isn't just there not being enough to go around. The problem is that we're accelerating inequality, which means that more and more people, especially in the global south, are getting screwed over. And this is a recipe for political instability and for extremism. Yes. And this is the problem. So until we begin to seriously address extreme inequalities, then all of these things, we can't, we, we have to face the, the ecological, the climate, the biodiversity crisis in a unified way. Yes. Because if this ship goes down, Mario, 
we all go down with it. But unfortunately, at the moment, we're all too busy, it seems, feathering our own nests and kind of getting the one over on the other guy to actually take the wider view that what's good for everybody is good for me. At yes. the moment, the, 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 the strong view is what's good for me, screw you. Yes. We've got to really take a wider view and realize that the empathy and looking after people Maybe people who don't look quite like us. Uh, we need to do that because, as I say, if the global south fails, and at the moment it's on rapid track for failure, if the global south fails, it will take us down with it. There's no question. So therefore, even if you don't really care about the global south, think of it as one end of the boat that we're all in. And if that end of the boat collapses, well, you, we may be on the dry end of the boat for now, but it won't last. So it's in our enlightened self-interest to look up, look around, and start listening to the science. And, and I mean this really seriously. And you intro this piece, I think, very well by describing how you know normality can it can go in a heartbeat. It's like our health. One day you're feeling fine, That's right. and the next day you're in front of a hospital yes. consultant and they're telling you scary things. And suddenly you're sitting there, and your whole life is flashing in front of you. And to be honest with you, when I gaze into the looking glass of the climate future. That's what it feels like. It's it's the most yes. extraordinarily scary experience. And, However, yep. there's no point in looking away, Mario. We have to look at this. And John, the critical mass of civility can break down very, very quickly. Um, this this thing we call money on the earth, for example. The money only exists, as everybody knows, because we agree with each other that money exists. The moment one of us starts saying, or both of us, that money has no value, that whole um, machine breaks down as well. Um, and the social current or the, the 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 financial currency system breaks down quite quickly once um, once this kind of fragility is is exposed. I want to read just a little bit of it, um, John, because the the, um, sure. the article is written in very short spurts, and I just want to read a little bit of it. Life on planet Earth, he says, will by the nineteen with twenty forties begin to keel over from the bottom. Its great towers and chains of life will crash and topple, having had the roots and foundations ripped out from under them. All the little things are dying off fastest and first. Insects, they're dying out. And we know that, John. People talk about going to Mulgar yes. on a summer drive. And the, in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s even, there used to be loads of insects crashing off the windscreen. Now there's none anymore. Insects, bees, fish, worms, and so forth. But all those chains and ladders of subsistence right up to us depend on them. Who's going to turn the soil when the worms are gone? Who's going to clean the rivers from turning to mud when the fish are gone? Who's going to nourish the plants that keep the forests healthy when the insects are gone? Now the real fireworks begin. I talked about our superficial or secondary systems. Now our primary systems, the most fundamental ones, begin to break, go bankrupt, end up depleted, crash, burn, energy, air, food, water, medicine, the things that keep us clean, nourished, fed, watered, alive in the most basic ways. And he goes on and on, John. Yes, he does. And um, again, this is well studied in science. We have this concept in science called the nine planetary boundaries. Uh, these, these are uh, briefly land use, climate change, biodiversity, ocean acidification, freshwater usage, uh, nitrogen and phosphorus. Now, these are the, if you like, the planetary boundaries where you must stay within the, the, the planetary limits for life on Earth to continue as it currently, in broadly as it currently is. Now, probably three, possibly four of those boundaries are already breached. Now, the problem with this is, think of it like your own body. Um, you can have a very healthy, um, I don't know, set of lungs, uh, kidney, spleen, whatever. However, if one organ, one critical organ fails, let's say your heart, well, it doesn't matter about how the rest of your body is doing because a critical organ fails, it takes the whole system down with it. We're in the same situation here. These nine planetary boundaries, all of these 
any one of these is potentially lethal to lose. And as I say, at the moment, three to four of them are flashing red. So we've got to really, as a species, behave probably for the first time in our history to take a species-wide view and decide what are we exactly? Are we masters of the universe? Are we owners of the planet? Well, if we are, we're doing a hell of a bad job on it. And the thing is, we are, you know, we are in charge on Earth and we need to start behaving like we're in charge. At the moment, we're rampaging around. We're running a civilization that, that is probably equivalent to an early adolescence. Of, of humanity, where we're involved in wreckage and rampage and looting, okay, because we haven't yet figured out, we're actually here for the long term. We've got to think not just about our own requirements, but we've got to think about our great, 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 great grandchildren. And what will they think of this generation, Mario? What will they look back if they if they actually make it through the, through the next century or two, well, they look back on us and say, do you remember that generation back then? They were, they were the generation that held the line, that did the right thing. Or will they look back, you know, as they squint out of their caves and say, what a pack of you-know-whats. Yeah, well, so these are the questions coming down the line at us. It's yeah. a failure of global leadership as well. And I don't, say that, um, I don't say that tritely. I mean, we need more of a global flavor of leadership rather than this tribal leadership that we have and this, this self-interest and America first and all this sort of stuff. And uh, it's, it's very difficult to combine our leadership abilities um, at the moment. It's everybody's operating off little separate federal states. Two or three hundred million years, um, the dinosaurs roamed the earth until they were blown away by a comet, basically, um, and they, they became extinct. Now, if you had asked the most arrogant of dinosaurs, um, how long do you think he'd be around? He'd go, oh, five or six hundred million years. I control the place. And yet we as humans have only been on the earth, what, a million years? Um, 200,000. As a current species, Mario, it's only about 200,000. As, as homo sapiens, 200,000 yes. years. But our, our, our nearest ancestors were probably eight, nine hundred thousand, a million years. A million years, yeah. And the, 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 we've been on the earth hardly a speck of time. And yet we think we'll be there forever. And it's so obvious we have no right to this planet if, it, if we don't treat it correctly. We have no right to hang around or stay just because our brain has evolved beyond any creature um, in the history of, of our planet. It doesn't mean it will keep us alive. We can just as easily become extinct as quickly as any other creature who's dominated the Earth, correct? I think that's correct. And the best description I ever heard of this was, was um, a scientist called E.O. Wilson. And he, he described it like this. He said, we have paleolithic brains, medieval institutions, and 21st century technology, which he described as the most terrifying combination because we haven't yet evolved to be able to control our own power. That's why I use the analogy of the adolescent. We, we're incredibly powerful. For example, humans move more soil, more earth every year than all the rivers in the world. So we're, we are a force of nature, an extraordinarily powerful force of nature. Yet, rather than doing it in a concerted, thoughtful way, we're doing it in a competitive way where every human is out to compete with every other human. And the whole system has been stoked along by consumerism, by corporations saying spend more, trade more, fly more, buy more. And that's all very well for them. They're serving their own narrow uh, interests. But who's looking out? Who's, who's at the controls saying, where is the sort of spaceship Earth headed? And unfortunately, on a global level, we have no leadership. And I think this is tragic. Uh, America, as you described so well in your introduction, uh, once upon a time, America was kind of the world's cop, uh, sort of, you know, set the tone, if you like, uh, for good and for ill, uh, that these days that leadership has evaporated. And you look around the world and you say, well, who, who are we getting this leadership from now? Russia? China? 
European Union, even within the EU, uh, we have such huge fractures from Hungary to Poland and, and of course, uh, Britain and the Brexit shambles. So we, this is a really bad time in human history for a failure of political ambition and leadership because we're facing an existential crisis. And yet we're behaving as if it's business as usual. And those two realities are on a collision course. We either, thing is, we either adjust our pathway or we're finished. And at the moment, I hear nobody proposing in any detail how we're going to change direction. And the attitude is, ah, the hell with it, we'll keep going, it'll be fine, we'll think of something. John, and the John, short, yep. Yeah, John, it, it's not all bad news in his article, and I wanted to stress that maybe at the end, because sure. he points away, he points us in a direction, and he says, Corona in its own way is trying to prepare us for this eventuality. It's trying to teach yeah. us how not to end as a civilization. It's giving us a hint by taking care of one another, another, not in some meaningless hallmark card kind of way, but in a razor sharp one. Invest now in the things you will need tomorrow. All of you, food, water, air, energy, medicine. Where do they come from? From the lungs, limbs, organs, blood of the earth, the forests, skies, oceans and rivers. From the creatures, the animals, beginning with the smallest which feed the nourish and nourish the bigger ones right up to us. Invest in all of that. Do it now. Do it like never before in history. Put aside your stupid squabbles and your pointless disputes. Put down the remote control, the phone, the drug, the fix. You are here on planet Earth. Are you really here on planet Earth? And we'll leave it there, John, um, because he's telling us that corona could be, coronavirus could be a, a, a warning that we can still heed rather than I think, an end game. I agree, Mario. I think it's a wake-up call. I think it's a, it's a reminder that, that our institutions, our systems are much more fragile than we think. Like our health, we need to look after these systems and we need to do it now. John Gibbons, thank you very much for joining me on Mario's Sunday Roast. Thank you.